0: Let's open God's Word this evening to Numbers chapter 6. We'll read God's Word first of all from there, where we will read the first 21 verses, and then we will turn to Judges 13 and read the first seven verses. Our text will be verses 4 and 5. Numbers 6 is the outstanding passage that sets before us the laws regarding a Nazarite This is the inspired and therefore infallible word of our God. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When either man or woman shall separate themselves to vow a vow of a Nazarite to separate themselves unto the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink, and shall drink no vinegar of wine or vinegar of strong drink, Neither shall he drink any liquor of grapes, nor eat moist grapes or dried. All the days of his separation shall he eat nothing that is made of the vine tree, from the kernels even to the husk. All the days of the vow of his separation, there shall no razor come upon his head, until the days be fulfilled, and the which he separateth himself unto the Lord, he shall be holy and shall let the locks of his hair of his head grow all the days of all the days that he separated himself unto the lord he shall come at no dead body he shall not make himself unclean for his father or for his mother for his brother or for his sister when they die because the consecration of his god is upon his head all the days of his separation he is holy unto the Lord. And if any man die very suddenly by him, and he that and he hath defiled the head of his consecration, then he shall shave his head in the day of his cleansing. On the seventh day shall he shave it. And on the eighth day he shall bring two turtles, that is turtle doves, or two young pigeons, to the priest to the door of the tabernacle of the congregation." And the priest shall offer the one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering and make an atonement for him, for that he sinned by the dead, and shall hollow his head that same day. And he shall consecrate unto the Lord the days of his separation and shall bring a lamb of the first year for a trespass offering. But the days that were before shall be lost because his separation was defiled. And this is the law of the Nazarite: When the days of his separation are fulfilled, he shall be brought unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, and he shall offer his offering unto the Lord: one he lamb of the first year without blemish for a burnt offering, and one ewe lamb for the first year of the first year without blemish for a sin offering, and one ram without blemish for peace offerings. And a basket of unleavened bread, cakes of fine flour mingled with oil, and wafers of unleavened bread anointed with oil, and their meat offering and their drink offerings, and the priest shall bring them before the Lord, and he shall and shall offer his sin offering and his burnt offering, and he shall offer the ram for a sacrifice of peace offerings unto the Lord, with a basket of unleavened bread. The priest shall offer also his meat offering and his drink offering. And the Nazarite shall shave the head of his separation at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And shall take the hair of the head of his separation and put it in the fire which is under the sacrifice of the peace offerings. And the priest shall take the sodden shoulder of the ram and one unleavened cake out of the basket and one unleavened wafer and shall put them upon the hands of the Nazarite after the hair of his separation is shaven. And the priest shall wave them for a wave offering before the Lord. This is holy for the priest with the wave breast and the heave shoulder. And after that, the Nazarite may drink wine. This is the law of the Nazarite who hath vowed and of his offering unto the Lord for his separation beside that that his hand shall get according to the vow which he vowed so that he must do after the law of his separation. Now let's turn to Judges 13 where we will read the first seven verses. And the children of Israel... Did evil again in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines forty years. And there was a certain man of Zorah, of the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and bare not. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto the woman and said unto her, Behold, now thou art barren and bearest not, but thou shalt conceive and bear a son. Now therefore, beware, I pray thee, and drink not wine, nor strong drink, and eat not any unclean thing. For lo, thou shalt conceive, and bear a son, and no razor shall come on his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite unto God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, saying, A man of God came unto me, and his countenance was like the countenance of an angel of God, very terrible. But I asked him not whence he was, neither told he me his name. But he said unto me, Behold, thou shalt conceive, and bear a son, and now drink no wine, nor strong drink, neither eat any unclean thing. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God, from the womb, to the day of his death. Thus far we read God's Word. The text for... This evening's sermon is verses 4 and 5. Now therefore, beware, I pray thee, and drink not wine, nor strong drink, and eat not any unclean thing. For lo, thou shalt conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come on his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite unto God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. Last week, Sunday evening, we began a new series of sermons studying the life of the judge Samson. And as we make our way through this series, we will come to see various ways in which Samson was unique among the various judges. There are differences between him and the others. One of which we saw last week. In that, we are given a record, not only of Samson's birth, but the announcement of his birth. This makes him distinct because with all the other judges, we introduced to them as adults when they come on the scene. But Samson, we're told about his coming before he's even born. And in that, he's a unique type of Christ pointing us clearly to the birth announcement of our Savior Jesus Christ, that He would come and deliver His people from our sins. That was one thing that made Samson unique from all the other judges. And now this week we see yet another one of them. Namely, that Samson was a Nazarite. That's not true of any of the other judges in this book. If you count Samuel as a judge, that applies to him. But within the book of Judges, Samson is alone in that he was a Nazarite. And again, it's not just that this makes him unique, but it it makes him a unique type of Christ. Pointing us to our Savior, the one true spiritual Nazarite the one who is perfectly devoted unto God from his womb throughout all of his days. And so, because there's a unique aspect of Samson and his rule as judge and how it points us to Christ, therefore we separate this out and have a sermon on just these two verses, rather than combining them with the sermon we had last week. But now, it's also appropriate that we look at these verses on this particular occasion. This is an applicatory service. This morning, we celebrated the Lord's Supper. We were reminded of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for us. And now, with hearts filled with gratitude, we come to church saying, What shall I render unto the Lord? How can I show forth my thankfulness to God? And this text provides us instruction. For Samson is not only a type of Christ. He's also an example of the believing child of God. That as we learn about ourselves, both negatively and positively, by studying the life of Samson. And here in this passage, we are reminded of our calling to be Spiritual Nazarites, those who are who abstain from all that is sinful and devote ourselves unto Jehovah God, so this evening we want to zero in on this idea of Samson as a Nazarite, and we will use that as our theme, Samson the Nazarite, and we'll notice three things: first, a mighty Nazarite, second a unique Nazarite, and then third, a typical Nazarite. And by typical, I obviously mean a type of Christ. A mighty Nazarite, a unique Nazarite, and a typical Nazarite. Part of the word of the angel of the Lord to Manoah's wife is that the son would be a Nazarite unto God from the womb. And we do need to remember that this passage that we're considering, these two verses are a part of the overall message that the angel of the Lord, that pre-incarnate Christ brought to Manoah's barren wife. He came to her at a particularly low point in Israel's history with the good news that God was about to raise up a deliverer and you are going to have a son who will be that deliverer. That was the message, but a part of the message included this instruction about this son, about this deliverer. He will be a Nazarite. So what's a Nazarite? Well, a Nazarite was an Israelite who took a vow to abstain from certain things as an act of devotion unto God. A Nazarite was someone who took a vow to abstain from certain things as a part of his devotion unto God. And we say that in light of what we learn about Nazarites in Numbers chapter 6. As I indicated, Numbers 6 is the outstanding passage that teaches us about a Nazarite, and in it we see that a Nazarite was to abstain from three different things. First of all, from alcoholic drinks. Verse 3, He shall separate himself from wine and strong drink, and shall drink no vinegar of wine or vinegar of strong drink, neither shall he drink any liquor of grapes, nor eat moist grapes or Dried. Nothing that would intoxicate the man. Nothing that would cause him to lose his inhibitions. If he drank too much, he was to abstain from all the, even from the ingredients that would be used to produce an alcoholic beverage. That's what verse 4 is getting at. All the days of his separation shall he eat nothing that is made of the vine tree, from the kernels even to the husk. So first, no strong drink. Second, there would be no razor to come upon his head. That is, he would not have his head, his hair cut. Verse five of Numbers six, and all the days of the vow of his separation, there shall no razor come upon his head until the days be fulfilled. In the which he separateth himself unto the Lord, he shall be holy and shall let the locks of his hair, of the hair of his head, grow. So that for an Israelite man, if he were a Nazarite, he would have been a very hairy man, long hair and probably a very full beard as well. No strong drink, no razor to cut the hair upon your head, and third and finally, no touching dead bodies. That's verse 6. All the days that he separateth himself unto the Lord, he shall come at no dead body. And that applied even if a a close loved one, a relative passed away. Verse 7 says, He shall not make himself unclean for his father or for his mother, for his brother or for his sister when they die, because the consecration of his, head, of his God is upon his head. So a Nazarite was to abstain from these three things as an act of devotion to God. That's the whole point. It's not just saying no to these three things. But this was all symbolic of his separation from that which is sinful and his consecration, his separation unto God from a positive point of view. And we say that in light of the meaning of the word Nazarite. The literal idea of a Nazarite is one who is devoted, one who is consecrated, one who is set apart unto another. And that idea comes out in number six when we keep reading about, keep reading that word separation. He'll be separate from this and separate unto God. And in particular, we read in verse eight all the days of his separation he is holy, that is set apart unto the Lord, devoted unto his God. And as far as the abstaining from those different things all of that was meant to point to and serve this positive consecration unto Jehovah God so that for the Nazarite, He would abstain from any and all strong drink. Why? Well, because strong drink alcoholic beverages have as their effect when we drink too much that we lose our self-control. And we begin to do things, say things that we might not otherwise. And that's contrary to the Christian life, which includes as its calling, the calling to be sober, to be temperate, to be self-controlled. So no strong drink with a view to maintaining that self-control as an act of devotion to God. In addition, there was no cutting of the hair. Now for myself, I do not see particular symbolism in the the no cutting of the hair. There are different commentators who have their different views in reading them. None of them had that ring of truth to them. And so why no cutting of the hair? Well, when we read number 6, it becomes fairly plain that the the hair made a Nazarite very visible. So you could spot a Nazarite in a moment's notice so that not cutting his hair, therefore, was indicating that his private devotion unto God should so characterize the whole of his life that it manifests itself to others in the way that he or she lives. Let your devotion be visible to all. So no cutting your hair. And then third and finally, no touching dead bodies. Because for an old, an Israelite living in the Old Testament, to touch a dead body was to touch something unclean. That which defiled for a corpse is the very embodiment of the corruption of sin. And therefore, the Nazarite was to abstain from that as a part of His devotion, His consecration unto Jehovah God. So that the outward signs were meant to point to this spiritual reality. And so it would be for Samson. That's the point. We're not having a sermon on Numbers chapter 6, but we're having a sermon on Judges 13 where God... T- Where the angel of the Lord tells to Manoah's wife, verse 5, For lo, thou shalt conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come on his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite unto God from the womb. Before he's born, Samson is set apart to be a Nazarite. Now there are questions about whether all three requirements apply to Nazarite, and we'll perhaps answer that question more definitively as we move forward, but specifically, what about touching dead bodies? If He's going to be a judge and deliver God's people from the hands of the Philistines by slaying them, does that one apply? Perhaps we will answer that question as we move forward, but either way, regardless of what conclusion we come to there, the others did apply. So that Samson grew up as a Nazarite. And it's important to see that he did do this. That he took this seriously. And it's important to note that because I think we often forget that about Samson. Because there's so much that we learn about him from a negative point of view that we can fail to see any of the positive. Our focus is on the fact that, well, later on, he, he will have his hair cut. He'll allow that to happen. And even before that, we see that he's not living a, as a spiritual Nazarite and that he keeps pursuing these ungodly women for, on account of his lustful desires. But that said there is evidence that he sought to be faithful to this calling as a Nazarite. Because every indication is that he did guard his hair all throughout his life up until the end. And even then, he is so reluctant to divulge the, the, the secret It's not until, as Scripture puts it, that he was vexed unto death on account of Delilah's nagging that he finally tells her about his hair. He sought to be faithful to this calling to him to be devoted unto God and to show that by being by abstaining from certain things. May God give us the grace to do the same. To abstain from certain things as a part of our devotion unto God. You see, we are called to be spiritual Nazarites for God has set us apart as His covenant people. He chose us in eternity. He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, into this world to die on the cross of Calvary, to shed His blood on our behalf, and He sent His Spirit to live and to dwell within our hearts. We have been set apart, and now the calling that comes to us is to to devote ourselves to this God of our salvation, to live for Him, to be consecrated positively unto our God. And that necessarily includes abstaining from sin. Separating ourselves from that which is sinful as a part of our separation positively unto our God. We are to be spiritual Nazarites. So how are we doing, congregation? Congregation? What place does alcohol have in your life? To be sure, there's not a call to total abstinence for us. But the consistent testimony of Scripture is that it speaks against the sin of drunkenness. Drinking to the point where we lose that self-control, we start to say things, we start to do things that we would not otherwise. Even if we set the alcohol aside, how are we doing when it comes to living a sober, temperate life? Are we characterized by self-control? Or are we allowing our emotions, perhaps our anger, to get the best of us? Can others see our devotion to God? When we're mingling with our college classmates, with our co-workers, with our neighbors, is it visible to them that I am set apart, devoted unto Jehovah God? And are we keeping ourselves from things that are unclean? things that are corrupt, things that defile us. What are we touching? What are we allowing to touch our ears, our eyes, to touch our hearts? God calls us to be spiritual Nazarites, those who abstain from that which is sinful as a part of our devotion unto God. God in congregation we have good reason to live this way because remember this is an applicatory sermon so that the the context of this sermon is the good news of the gospel that we heard this morning salvation in Jesus Christ that he will receive all of those who come to him in true faith the good news that his blood was shed his body was broken for us at the cross of calvary and now it's with gratitude it's with thanksgiving in our heart that we need to receive this particular word and the the reminder to live a life for god so may god grant us the grace to do so Especially because failures in this respect leave us powerless against our spiritual enemies. And I say that in light of the connection between Samson's strength and his success against the enemy and his. Being a Nazarite and his vow as a Nazarite. The two are indeed linked together. There's a reason this first point is not just a Nazarite, but a mighty Nazarite, a strong Nazarite. And the text itself links Samson's being a Nazarite with his might in delivering God's people from the Philistines. For verse 5, we read, For lo, thou shalt conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come on his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite unto God from the womb. And now it adds this, and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. And now we took that last part of verse 5, and we brought it into our sermon last week, but we must see that it's connected to what we're considering tonight. It's not until after Manoah's wife receives the instruction that Samson must be a Nazirite, that she's then informed he will be a deliverer. The two are connected. They go hand in hand. So that his strength, his might, is wrapped up in his living the life of a Nazarite, And we'll see that near the end of our series. When Samson does allow his hair to be cut. He loses his strength. Not because the hair is what made him strong. Obviously, the Spirit made him strong. We'll see that again and again and again throughout this series. But yet there was a connection between being a Nazarite and the strength that God gave him. For while God is the source of his strength, and that strength is given to him by the Spirit, Samson by his sin was grieving the Spirit. When we grieve the Spirit, he, he withdraws from us. Not entirely. He does not forsake us. But when we walk impenitently in some sin, the, the Spirit pulls back a little bit as it were. And that's what's going on with Samson later on in this history. And when the Spirit is grieved and thus pulls back a little bit, as it were, the Spirit is no longer giving him that same miraculous strength. So that in Samson, we see that there's this connection between his strength, his success against the enemy, and his living the life of a Nazarite. So that when he spurned his vows as a Nazarite, He had no strength against the enemy. And what a lesson for the Israelites in that day. God raised up Samson not just as a deliverer, but to teach the nation of Israel about themselves. For you see, Samson exemplifies... The truth embedded into a passage like Leviticus chapter 26. Leviticus chapter 26, we see this same connection that we see in the life of Samson. We see it positively, certainly. Leviticus 26, we read at verse. Three, this, if ye walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and do them. And then what follows are the various blessings that will come upon Israel in the way of obedience. And one of them is what's mentioned in verses 7 and 8. And ye shall chase your enemies and they shall fall before you by the sword. And five of you shall chase an hundred, and an hundred of you shall put ten thousand to flight, and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. That's Samson. It's going to be one against a thousand in the history that follows. God gave him strength against his enemies. But the flip side is also true. The, the negative is also true. And that comes out in the rest of Leviticus chapter 26. For example, in verse 14, we read, but if ye will not hearken unto me and will not do all of these commandments, and here what follows are the, the consequences of their sin. One of them is verse 17. And I will set my face against you. And ye shall be slain before your enemies. They that hate you shall reign over you. And ye shall flee when none pursueth you. And that too points us to Samson. Samson embodies this in his own life. So that Samson was really a a visible reproof against the nation of Israel. Israel. For you see, it was not just the Nazarites who had the calling to abstain from certain things as a part of their devotion unto God. This calling came to all of them. For God set apart the entire nation as His covenant people. And thus the entire nation was to live for Jehovah God. But they had turned their backs on Him. They were walking impenitently in the sin of idolatry as we saw last week. So is it any wonder that at this point in their history they are completely powerless against their enemies? This is the consequence for their sin. Through their apostasy, they lost their strength against their enemies. They had no success against them. And to help make this plain, why this was the case, God raised up Samson. Who was both at the same time a judge and a Nazarite to show that Israel's strength was connected to her separation from idols and her devotion unto God. And that applies to us as well too. The same connection between our strength and success against our enemies and our devotion unto God. And now the connection is not this. That my devotion is what makes me strong. It's not that my holiness is the the source of my strength. The source of my strength is God. And He gives me that strength by the power of His Spirit, which I receive by faith. But now, when I go down the path of sin... That involves drifting further and further away from God. And what we're doing then is we're drifting further and further away from the source of our strength. And therefore, if we continue on down that road for a time, well, we become very quickly easy targets for our enemies. We've wandered astray. We've left the side of our Good Shepherd as it were. And thus we're powerless. And all this then serves as a warning against turning away from our God, going down the path of sin, and an encouragement to draw near to Him, to press close to His side in our devotion unto Him as spiritual Nazirites. That's what we learn when we look at Samson, the mighty Nazirite. But he's also a very unique Nazirite. The fact that he is a Nazirite makes him unique among the judges. But now, even within the category of Nazarites, he's distinct. There's, there's really three aspects of his being a Nazirite that are distinct, that are unique to him that come out in this history, each of which is instructive for us. First, for Samson, being a Nazarite, was not because of a vow that he made, but because God Himself determined this for him. Ordinarily, a Nazarite became a Nazarite by taking a vow. That's clear from Numbers chapter 6 where we read in verse 2, Speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them, When either man or woman shall separate themselves, to vow a vow of a Nazarite to separate themselves unto the Lord. It's telling us that ordinarily someone becomes a Nazarite by making this, this promise directly to God. And it's a a decision that he or she makes willingly. But with Samson, it's not that he makes this decision later on in his life, but the decision is made for him before he's ever born. Because this passage that we're considering is the the word of the angel of the Lord to Manoah's wife before Samson is even born. He's going to be a Nazarite. Now, that does not mean that Samson was unwilling in this. For as we've already noted, there is clear evidence that he sought to be faithful to his vows as a Nazarite. But that's true because God determined it so. God set him apart. And that's instructive because that's how it goes for us for all of God's people. Our devotion unto God, our separation unto Him, our sanctification, is the result of God's determining that we will be set apart. He chose us in eternity to be His holy people. Now, again, this does not mean we are unwilling in this But yet God's will is determinative and it's because He has willed for us to be His people set apart from sin devoted unto Him that He then works in us the willingness. He produces the desire within us. He works in us both the willing and the doing of a life of devotion, consecration unto God. So that standing behind Our devotion unto Him is His sovereign grace. That, first of all, is what we learn when we look at this history and the things that make Samson unique among the Nazarites. Second, he's unique among the Nazarites because his mother participated in this. Ordinarily, this was not the case. Because ordinarily, It's a decision that an adult is making. An adult mate takes a vow. I'm going to be a Naz right now. And therefore, the parent is not involved in that. The parent can make their own vow, but the parent is not participating in the same vow. But it's different here. Because Manoah's wife, Samson's mother, is instructed to live accordingly. Verse 4, Now therefore beware, I pray thee, and drink not wine, nor strong drink, and eat not any unclean thing. These words are addressed to Manoah's wife. She is to abstain from certain things as a part of her devotion unto God. And that makes Samson unique. And again, this is instructive for us. Because in this we see God's own purpose in giving to Samson, an example to follow. So that when Samson grew up, he could see his mother's own devotion unto God. Now admittedly, there are some who think that she abstained from those things only during the time of her pregnancy. Maybe that's true. I believe that this characterized her life so that when Samson is growing up. There's a model that he can emulate. And we can see God's purpose in this because God ordinarily uses godly parents to raise up godly children. This woman is going to be an instrument in the hands of our Redeemer for the spiritual good of her son. And so it must be for us as parents. Parents, our children learn so much by our example. They are watching us. And if what they see is us indulging in sin, if they see us constantly stepping over the line... Well, very quickly, they will learn to do the same. We must be a positive example for them. Learning to obey Jehovah God is hard enough as it is. Because our children, along with us, have that sinful nature that hates God, that hates the neighbor. And therefore, we must model for them what abstaining from sin, abstaining from idolatry looks like and devoting ourselves entirely, completely, fully to our God looks like. And all of this is is to say that parents who desire their children to be holy must seek to be holy themselves first of all. There are things that make Samson unique as a Nazarite. First, he did not take the vow. God decided it for him. Second, his mother participated in it. And third, he was to be a Nazarite for his entire life. From the womb until death. And again, that makes him distinct because ordinarily, this was not the case. In Numbers chapter 6, we read again and again about the days of his separation. And then beginning at verse 13, we read about what happens when those days are fulfilled. Numbers 6, verse 13, and this is the law of the Nazarite, when the days of his separation are fulfilled. That is, there's an end date. There's a completion. And then he can drink wine again as the chapter goes on to say. But for Samson, it would be different. For as we read in verse 7, This is now Manoah's wife talking to Manoah, relaying what she learned. The end of verse 7 says, "...for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of His death." It was not to be temporary. It was to be lifelong. And here again, there's instruction for us that for us abstaining from sin... And devoting ourselves to God, it's not a season of life. It's not a part-time thing that there's days of separation from sin and then I can go back to sin. No. Our devotion to God is to characterize our lives from the time that we're born until the time that we die. So three unique aspects Of Samson and his being a Nazarite, each of which is instructive. But now we also need to not just look at the three individually, but we have to step back and take these different things into account and look at the broader picture and the important truth that comes out from the whole of this. Namely, that here in this passage we have a clear testimony regarding the salvation of the children of believers in their infancy already. Notice the specific wording of verse 5. For the child shall be a Nazarite unto God from the womb. And now that you know that the word Nazarite means one devoted, consecrated, set apart unto God, we read that with clear understanding, the child shall be set apart unto God from the womb. So that embedded into this history is the truth that God is often pleased to save the children of believers in their infancy. And this is not the only passage that teaches this truth. We see this, for example, elsewhere in Scripture. We see this in Luke 1, verse 15, where we read of John the Baptist, "...he shall be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, and he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb." Already in his mother's womb, the Holy Spirit would come to live and to dwell within him, to fill him and thereby set him apart as one devoted, consecrated unto God. We see the same thing in a passage such as 2 Samuel 12, verse 23. In that context, David's seven-day-old son has just died. and He confesses by faith, I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. That is, there's nothing that I can do to bring him back into this life, but I know that I will go to be with him. Where, David? In heaven. Which is to say, that child is now in heaven. Telling us that this child was saved at the age of seven days. And thus, it's on the basis of Scripture that we believe in the salvation of the children of believers in their infancy. Now to qualify that, we must make clear, we're talking about the children of believers. This does not apply to the children of a child of an unbeliever. for there is no scriptural basis for this notion of a stage, a period of innocency. For the reality is that all of us were conceived and born in sin so that when we were in our mother's womb, we were guilty sinners before God. So we're not talking about the children of unbelievers, we're talking about the children of believers. And even here, the point is not that every single child of believing parents is necessarily elect. Because there's... Not only the Jacobs in the covenant, but also the Esau's, those who grow up and one day manifest their unbelief and their rejection of Jesus Christ. But, with those qualifications in place. Let me rephrase that. Those qualifications in no way take away from the main spiritual truth that we see here in this passage that as a part of His faithfulness to His promise to continue His covenant with the children of believers, God is pleased to save our children even in their infancy. So it's not the case, as the Baptists would say, that a child has to come to conscious faith First, that he, must, he or she must make a credible profession of faith. For as Scripture teaches us, for some of God's children already in the womb, they are full of the Holy Ghost. They've been given the faculty of faith and thereby are fully united to Jesus Christ. So it was for Samson. The child shall be a Nazarite set apart unto God from the womb. And we trust the same was true for Asha, Bethel, Ferguson. In light of God's promise to continue his covenant in the line of generations, in light of Scripture's own testimony. That the child of a believer can be set apart, devoted unto God already in the womb. We have no reason to doubt that Asha is now in heavenly glory. And in using that language, no reason to doubt, I am drawing from the canons of Dort, had one article seventeen. Head 1, Article 17 says, Since we are to judge of the will of God from His Word, which testifies that the children of believers are holy, not by nature, but in virtue of the covenant of grace in which they together with the parents are comprehended. Godly parents have no reason to doubt of the election and salvation of their children whom it pleaseth God to call out of this life in their infancy. And it's important to recognize that this is not some empty sentimental attempt to comfort grieving parents. Canons 117 is a faithful summary of the Word of God so that there's real, solid comfort for parents who lose a child in their infancy. Whether that child had time to grow, to develop, to be a part of the family, Whether that child was taken already in the womb through a miscarriage or whether the child lived for three hours. As parents, on account of God's faithfulness to His own covenantal promise, we have no reason to doubt the salvation of those children. And we have that comfort because of the saving work of Jesus Christ to whom all of this history points us. For you see, while Samson was a mighty Nazarite and a unique Nazarite, most importantly, he was a Typical Nazarite. A Nazarite who was a type of Jesus Christ. A real Old Testament person who points us ahead to Christ and the salvation that we have in Him. And specifically, Samson the Nazarite points us to Christ's life of perfect devotion unto God. Jesus Christ was the one true Nazarite. Now in saying that, we are not explaining the truth that's expressed in Matthew where we are told that Jesus Christ was a Nazarene. Those are two different concepts. Him being a Nazarene has to do with Him being born in Nazareth and Him being the object of reproach. He was despised. He was rejected. Different concept. What we're doing here is seeing that Samson is a, a shadowy revelation that points us to Jesus Christ as the one who abstained from all sin and lived a life of perfect devotion to our God. So that for him, was not a matter of the, the symbolism, but what we're interested in is the reality It wasn't just an outward show, but this was internal. This was in his heart, and this characterized the whole of his life. That's how we understand this, because the reality is, Jesus Christ did not live according to the requirements of number six. He didn't. For there's clear evidence that Jesus Christ drank strong drink. He drank wine. His first miracle was turning water into wine. And even if someone would argue, well, he, he never took a drink there. Well, what about at the Lord's Supper? When he uses wine as one of the elements that he institutes as part of the Lord's Supper. I should have said, what about the the Passover where he institutes the Lord's Supper and makes wine one of the elements? Now, we do not know whether... Jesus ever cut His hair? Probably He did. We cannot say anything authoritatively one way or the other, but we do know that He touched a dead body. We're told that explicitly. When He came to heal, to raise from the dead the daughter of Jairus, we are told explicitly that He touched her. So Jesus Christ did not live according to the requirements in Numbers chapter 6, but he, he was still the, spiritual, the one true Nazarite because in Jesus Christ, we find the fulfillment of the, the spiritual truth that this is pointing us to. Abstaining from anything and everything that's sinful as a part of perfect devotion, consecration unto God, so that for our Savior Jesus Christ, not once... Did he ever drink so much that he lost his self-control? And even when a strong drink was offered to him immediately prior to his crucifixion to dull the pain, he would not take it. And even if you set strong drink aside, in Jesus Christ we see one who was always self-controlled. Sober. Temperate. So that even in those times of anger, His anger did not get out of hand. It was a righteous anger. And so fully was our Savior devoted to to His God, to His Father, that everyone could see it. It was visible. It was on display. There was no shadow of a doubt that this man was devoted to God. And he never did anything that would make him unclean, dirty, defiled, corrupt. He avoided all of it. And notably, this was true from his mother's womb already. Of Samson, we read that for the child shall be a Nazarite unto God from the womb. And oh, how that points us to the birth announcement of our Savior Jesus Christ. In Luke 1, verse 35, And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing, that holy One which shall be born of thee, shall be called the Son of God the angel refers to Him as the Holy One already in His mother's womb. Because this characterized Him already from then. for as to His person, Jesus Christ is the Holy Son of God. But more than that, even His humanity was holy in His mother's womb for He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, which included the work of the Spirit to shield the human nature from the corruption of Mary, from that being passed on to Him. It included the work of the Spirit to sanctify, to set apart the human nature of Jesus Christ so that Jesus Christ was set apart, devoted unto God from His mother's womb. And it lasted all throughout His life. This was not just a season of life. This was not a part-time thing. But from the time that he drew his first breath until the time that he breathed his last and gave up the ghost, there were no moral failures. There were no spiritual breakdowns. But always, at all times, perfectly from the heart, he was devoted unto God. Even at the cross. Even when all was dark for three full hours and He was forsaken of God the Father. Even in the midst of the darkness, Jesus Christ continued to abstain from all sin so that not one sinful thought, not one sinful desire entered into His heart or mind during those hours, but all through those hours, His heart was full of perfect, complete devotion unto God. He loved the Father even as the Father poured out His wrath upon Him. Jesus Christ is the one true Nazarite. And thus He has saved us. We noted the connection between Samson being a Nazarite in his work to deliver the two are tied together and the same applies to Christ. It says the one who lived a, a life of perfect devotion unto our God that Jesus Christ has saved us. For in his perfect devotion to God, he was obedient even unto the death of the cross. He paid the punishment that we deserve for our sins so that there's forgiveness. But more than that, his life of abstaining from sin and devoting himself to God, that's what's imputed to us as the basis of our justification. So that when God looks down from heaven upon us from a legal point of view, what he sees is that life of obedience. He sees the devotion of Jesus Christ transferred over to our account. That's how we can be right with our God. So that when we speak of Jesus Christ being the one true spiritual Nazarite, the point is not, well, here's a good example, now follow it. It's implied, but that's not the main point. The main point is, by His death, by His life, He has accomplished our salvation. And what is more, by His Spirit, sent to fill our hearts. We find in Jesus Christ the strength to now seek to live according to this word. Of ourselves, we are powerless. Of ourselves, we have no strength. But in Jesus Christ, by the power of His Spirit, He gives us the grace to abstain from sin, from idolatry, and devote ourselves to our God. Not only is there deliverance, Not only is there strength in Christ, there's also the motivation. Now here we circle back one last time to the fact that this is an applicatory service. The motivation is gratitude for all that Jesus Christ has done for us. So with our hearts fixed on Him with eyes of faith, looking to our Savior. Let us give thanks to our God and may that thanks come to express itself in the life of devotion to the great God of our salvation. Amen. Amen. Father in heaven, We thank Thee for Thy Word. Apply it unto our hearts and lives. And give us the grace to live lives of consecration, devotion unto Thee. Hear this prayer for Christ's sake. Amen.